that I uh, introduce myself, Mike Harris. Since I go to the 8.30 service and you guys go to the 11, uh, the 11 o'clock service, uh, some of the folks in here I know, others I don't know so well, uh, and I look forward to the opportunity to, to meet everybody over time. But uh, it's good to be together in the house of the Lord. Um, Chuck asked me to speak this morning, and uh, I want to start by saying that church has always been a good part of my life, a very good part of my life. I am what you would call a cradle Baptist. Uh, my parents started taking me to church shortly after I was born and uh, was in church with them all my younger life. Uh, after, I, uh, after I got out on my own, there was never a period of time when I was very far away from the church or uh, was, not, uh, was not spending time in church services. And many good things, many good things have accrued to me, have come into my life because of, uh, because of my interaction with church, with church. But there's a warning there also because I will be sharing with you some very bad things that came into my life uh, that were my responsibility. And uh, all those things came into my life while I was going to church every Sunday, while I was participating in church every Sunday. But I want to uh, I want to share a little bit with you about uh, about my story as a believer. Uh, I came to know Christ as my God, Savior, and Lord when I was nine years old. Uh, I remember very clearly God calling me. I remember very clearly being convicted of my need to receive Jesus, to to get close to Him, to uh, come to know Him, to to tie myself into into our church, into our local church. And, um, and I remember going to a revival meeting, and my mom and dad must have understood that God's Spirit was dealing with me because they had the pastor uh, come back and speak to me after the service. And I didn't receive Christ at that time, even though it was a powerful experience. And uh, a little bit later, I did receive Christ when I was nine, as I said before. Uh, my dad was the superintendent of a mission that our church had established in Bryson, Tennessee. I'm from Middlesbrough, Kentucky. Bryson, Tennessee was a little remote coal camp, very, very far away from, far away from anything and everything. And uh, no coal was being mined there anymore, and the, about the only folks that lived there were, uh, were people that were very poor and very sick, and uh, the community was very small, and our church established a mission there, and uh, I was saved as I listened to the preaching in that mission. Dear, dear Sunday school teacher, Anita Evans uh, saw that I was under conviction, that God's Spirit was, uh, was convicting me, and she came up and shared the good news, the gospel of Jesus with me, and I received that, and that was the beginning of my walk in faith with the Lord. And that was a very real experience. You know, I think a lot of times we wonder how real salvation experiences are for young people. It was very real for me. It was very real to me. Uh, I remember just an airiness, a lightness coming over me, a happiness, a joy, uh, because that I had aligned myself properly with God, because I knew him in the way that he had asked me to come to know him. I remember the next day at school witnessing uh, to my classmates about what had happened to me, about my salvation experience and about getting saved. So my salvation experience at age nine was very real. 
It was very powerful and it was very profound. Um, Debbie and I, we got, we got married in 1974 down in Middlesboro. And uh, that was a very uh, uh, important time in our lives. Um, I graduated from University of Tennessee Engineering School in, uh, in 1975. Uh, started, started my career. Uh, three years later, we, uh, we started our family. And, um, uh, but another thing that happened during this time, all in God's good providence, is that I developed OCD. Now, some of you here may suffer from that. Uh, it's called obsessive compulsive disorder, and it is a mental illness. And it absolutely debilitated me. I didn't understand what was going on, didn't know enough, didn't have sense enough to seek out professional help. And so I just suffered with that until the suffering got so bad that I called out to God. And when I called out to God, he began the healing process in my life. And uh, that began a spiritual awakening in me, a spiritual renewal, if you will, that began to, uh, began to take place in my life. And, um, you know, as, as I continued to walk with God and uh, my faith got stronger, um, I came to the point that I had to make another decision for Christ. Uh, I, had a, I had a very demanding job, and uh, that job was taking a lot of my time. And I also, had, uh, I also was getting more and more involved in church and in ministry, and that was taking a lot of time. And I knew that I needed to make a decision to give one time to, to one thing and less time to another. And uh, unfortunately, I made the wrong decision. At the time, it seemed reasonable to me. I compromised, or I thought I was going to compromise with God. I told God that, uh, God, you can have all of my life, everything that I am, except for my career. I'm going to take care of my career myself. I'm going to ride herd over it and oversee it. But you've got everything else. You've got everything else. And this was such a profound decision for me that I remember exactly where I was when I made it. Uh, I remember the people that were with me when I made it, my two sons and, and one of their cousins. Uh, they were, they were preteens. They were probably 10, 11 years old, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, something like that. And um, because I remember that so graphically and clearly, it tells you that that was a, uh, an important decision in my life but I made the wrong decision in that moment in that moment I put a counterfeit God an idol between me and the one true living God I placed an idol between me and him and that never works uh, that never ever works I made a wrong I made the wrong decision um, um, and, you know, one of the things I discovered in the ensuing years, that it wasn't even the career that was the counterfeit God to me. It was my desire to be accepted and to be honored and acclaimed by men. I wanted to be thought of as being right at the top of my game, right at the very best of what I was doing. And I wanted the honor and acclaim of men. Now, if I'd read just a little bit in the Bible at that point in time, and I was acquainted with the Bible, 
but I, I suspect that I wanted to make this decision the way that I made it. But if I'd read just a little bit in the Bible, I would have been reminded that uh, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon being anything else other than those things associated with God. You cannot serve God and mammon because you'll either hate the one and love the other or love the one and despise the other. And uh, uh, I would also know, I uh, would also be reminded that the Bible says that uh, where your heart is, there, or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, I often wonder why it said it that way. Why it didn't say, why it didn't say, whatever it is that your heart wants will be your treasure. Well, that's self-explanatory because our hearts want everything they see. Our hearts want all the shiny trinkets and objects that we think are going to bring us happiness and that we think are going to satisfy us. And they never, ever do. Only God satisfies. Only God satisfies. And, and uh, uh, so, and I would have been reminded that I needed to love God. You know, that first part of the law of love that we, that we all know so well, we've all heard talked about so much. We need to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And um, uh, there, were plenty, there are plenty of things in the Bible warning me away from this decision. But again, I wanted to make that decision. I wanted that compromise. I thought I could live with that compromise. And you know what? My counterfeit God rewarded me. My counterfeit God rewarded me. I became a vice president of a major company. Uh, Vice President of Sales, uh, my sales organization, which had about 130 people in it, was responsible for about a billion a year in sales. I had uh, the respect of my colleagues, I had the respect of the people that worked for me, and I had the respect of my customers. I had all those things that I had begun to pursue when I started pursuing that counterfeit God. So you would think, oh, things are good for you. You've got the world in, uh, by the tail in a downhill drag. Nothing could be farther from the truth. What I did was, what I did was, I left God out. I chose, I chose, I chose to serve and to worship a counterfeit God, an idol, rather than to serve and to worship the one true and living God. And that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And about 15 years ago, about 15 years ago at age 55, that brought me to a dark place. In Celebrate Recovery, Celebrate Recovery, we talk a lot about hitting your personal bottom. That night in 19, in, uh, when I was 55 years old, 15 years ago, I hit my personal bottom. I came up against a black wall of despair, despondency, darkness, desperation, and dependence. I came up against a black wall of all those things. And in that moment, and I remember it clearly, it's another one of those things I remember clearly. I was in my car, I was driving to some hotel or the other uh, where I was going to spend the night and get up and start uh, another 10 or 12 hour day the next day. You know, I, this was about 11 o'clock at night, and I hadn't even got to the hotel yet. And uh, 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 out of my despair and despondency and out of that blackness, my uh, 
the pain of my situation became worse than my fear of changing. I hit bottom. I hit bottom. And I'll tell you, the, the uh, language of addiction applied to me. It applied to me very well. I wasn't addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs, but I was absolutely addicted to the high that this counterfeit God made me, gave me when I, would, uh, when I would be acclaimed of men, when people would brag on me and talk about what a fine person, what a fine employee, what a fine individual that I was. Uh, all of that thing, all of, the, all of that addiction, all of that addiction was there. And I needed that as bad as any alcoholic or drug addict needs a hit. I needed it that bad. So don't ever think that these counterfeit gods are benign. They are anything but. These idols that we create in our life will take us to a terrible, terribly dark place. But God's grace is greater. And at age 55, on that night of darkness, despair, despondency, and depression, I called out to God in repentance and asked for restoration. I asked him to restore the joy of my salvation. And I began to do these things. I began to do these things. I was so far away from God, it was hard for me to even know how to start. That's surprising, isn't it? But I was so far away from God, it was hard for me to know how to start. And I knew I had a heck of a battle ahead of me. But I began to put God in his rightful place and me in mine. You know, uh, I, had, uh, I had come to have a very low and poor opinion of God. I elevated God in my life again. I put him back on the throne and back on the throne of my heart. I began to become extremely serious about being obedient to God, about drinking the sweet nectar of obedience. I got extremely serious about listening to and cooperating with the sweet Holy Spirit of God. And those things working together started a transformation in my life that has continued throughout these last 15 years. And I can't take no credit for that. I absolutely can take zero credit for that. You know, if I hadn't got to that black point, if I hadn't got to that point where my pain was worse than my fear of changing, if I hadn't come to that point, I would have stayed where I was. I would have kept on keeping on. And because uh, it's what I had come to know. It's what had become reality to me. But thank God he called me away from that. And he called me back to that. And his grace was sufficient. When I began to uh, reach out to him, he met me where I was. And he began to walk with me. And he began to change my life. And I praise him for it. I could never praise him enough for that. So in closing, I wanted to think a little bit about what these last 15 years have been about. Because it's certain, it's absolutely certain that these last 15 years for me, from the time that I was 55 until today when I'm 70, these last 15 years were very different years spiritually than the 55 that preceded them, than the 55 that went ahead of them. And I think I've found the answer to that and why that is true in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And that verse says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and, this is a big and, and 
that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. For the first 55 years of my life, I absolutely believed in God. There's never been a time in my life when I didn't believe in God. I absolutely believed in God, but I was never consistent in diligently seeking God to obtain the rewards that he would make available to me. I was never consistent in that. My life was like this. I would, uh, I would uh, uh, reach some spiritual peak, and then I'd see something shiny that attracted my attention, and I would follow that, and I would go down, and I'd hit a bottom, and I would come back up, and I would go down. And that was pretty much my spiritual life for 55 years. It may sound familiar to a lot of you, because I have talked to many, many people uh, that, uh, that love the Lord, and it is a common experience for many of them, again, to come, to go through this descent, come to a bottom, and then start an ascent with God on the other side. That's common experience. It's, it's not universal, but it is very, very common. And I have to say it was, it was exactly where I was. But, uh, uh, and so uh, I want to share with you just a little bit about some of the sweet rewards that I have found over the last 15 years, uh, over the last 15 years of serving God as I have diligently sought, sought him. Uh, um, first of all, he gave me a life of meaning. Uh, before, my life was selfish and self-centered. It was all about me and my doing whatever I thought would make me happy. After my reversion, God gave my life meaning through the first part of the law of love, that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to prefer him before all other things. One of, the, one of the situations, events that just crystallized this for me, that the Holy Spirit used to crystallize this for me, is I was driving one day listening to Christian radio, and Rick Warren was being interviewed by someone or the other, and uh, they asked him a question to which he responded like this. And if you've read Rick Warren, you've seen this statement before. But Rick Warren said, it's not about you, it's about God. It's not about you, it's about God. In that moment, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I had lived the first 55 years of my life, it was all about me. It was all about me. It was very little about God. God was just one of many things in my life, but he was not the thing. And... Uh, I saw the need that day as I heard that statement from this man of God. As I heard that statement from this man of God, I saw the need, to, need, need that day of always giving him first place, of always loving him with everything that I am, and of always preferring him before all other things. Uh, another thing that he's rewarded me with over these last 15 years is a life of purpose, a life of purpose. Uh, and this comes from the second half of that law of love, where we are told to love our neighbor as ourselves. God gave my life blessed purpose and direction through relationship with others. Before, uh, before I, I, I went through this reversion experience, you know, my family was important to me, and I had a lot to do with them, but that was about it. I was in a church, had uh, brothers in the diaconate, uh, uh, knew a lot of folks, 
but I wasn't close to anybody. I didn't have deep relationships with anybody. And, and that is something the Lord calls us to. We need to develop those deep relationships of commitment to each other as believers. And uh, as, as that happened in my life, and I began to minister and serve others, um, and I had worthwhile tasks to perform, it satisfied the deepest yearnings and longings of my soul. And then another reward is hope. He gave me a life of hope. Walking with God shows us that he is bigger than all of life's difficulties and challenges. He's big enough to take us through the ultimate challenge, our own death and the deaths of those that we deeply, deeply love. Um, what a difference in attitude we can have because of this hope that God gives us, this hope that he makes available to us day, day by day. What a, what, a, what a confidence enhancer. What a, a way to look at and to view life. And one of the things I truly believe about this day and time that we live in is that people have lost all hope because so many of them have abandoned God. It's not in humanity or the government that we find hope. It's in God and God alone, and he can provide us that hope. And then uh, a life of joy. He gave me a life of joy. Now, that life of joy has come primarily from two things. One is, and I'll borrow Tim's Bible. One is this word, this word. I have come to love and to cherish the word of God. And as I read it, and I think about how it all fits together, how it all goes together, as I read it, and God speaks to my heart about some huge, magnificent truth about Jesus, about God the Father, and about the Holy Spirit. As that happens to me, I have joy that is beyond compare. I have the consolation of the Holy Spirit, and God, God gives me that joy through this word, and he will give that to you. If you don't have it, he will give that to you through his word. This Holy Spirit that lives within us, uh, it is a perfect connection to that word. And it will always interpret the word to us in a way that can bring us great, great joy and consolation. And then the other place where I receive joy is, that, is as I see God working in the lives of, uh, of, of, of myself, the lives of others that I know, and the lives of those people that I'm ministering to. Uh, when I see God working in their lives and doing, doing something positive, something good, something, something precious, it gives me great, great joy. Something that I knew nothing about 15 years ago. Knew absolutely nothing about that 15 years ago. And then finally, God can make available to us a life of peace. Now, this is the tough one. This is the tough one. Uh, this life of peace only comes as we surrender our will to God's will. This life of peace only comes as we allow God to be in control of our lives, not us. As we reject our own control of our lives and look to God for control of our lives. Now, this is a tough thing. This is a tough thing because, I mean, that's the, that was the original sin in the garden. The original sin in the garden was people wanted to be like God. They wanted to be in control of their own lives. 
that was the original sin, the very first one that led to all the rest of them. And, and uh, this, this, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, desire that we have to be in control, it is hard to defeat. It was hard for Jesus to defeat. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was facing the biggest challenge of his life, which was to be separated from God from three hours, for three hours while he hung on the cross bearing my sins and yours. You know, he prayed, he prayed, and he got peace as he said, not my will, but thine be done. That's where he got peace. If we're going to have peace, that's how we're going to have it. As we relinquish control of our lives and say on a daily, hour by hour, moment by moment basis, moment by moment basis, God, your will, not mine, be done. And so this morning as I close, I want to, uh, I want to first of all encourage anybody that's here that doesn't know Jesus as God's Savior and Lord to make that decision. Commit your life to him. You will never, ever be sorry for that. Uh, no matter how successful you become, no matter how, uh, how good a life you have, uh, even if you're like the, uh, the rich man that tore down his barns to build bigger barns, you will never, ever be sorry for asking Jesus to be your God, Savior, and Lord. And then, for those of you that are here that know Jesus as God, Savior, and Lord, I ask you to ask yourself this question. How diligently are you seeking him? How diligently are you seeking him? Because he won't take second place. He won't take third place. He won't take fourth place. He won't be one of many things out here. Uh, uh, he says that we cannot love, we cannot love God and Mammon, because we're going to hate one and love the other, or love one and despise the other. He says that where our our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And so I ask you, are you diligently seeking Him, or are you diligently seeking something else? something other than him. I tell you on the uh, basis of my experience and on what this word has to say, if you are seeking something other than God first, you've got some, you've got some suffering to do. There's some suffering out there for you because God will call you back to himself. He's faithful. He will call you back to himself. And a lot of times, pain is the only thing that will call us, that will get our attention. And so, I encourage you, ask yourself this question. Don't just ask yourself this question today. Ask yourself this question daily and make sure that you can answer it by saying, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you all. Again, I'm so thankful uh, for the dedicated servant leaders that we have in this church. Okay, church, I got a question for you. You don't have to have a show of hands, but how many of you people, how many of you folks are, um, have already got your vacation this summer planned out? How many of you already uh, have it all plotted out, know exactly what you're going to do, where you're going to go, when you're going to go there? I've got a ring, Steve. I'm not sure what it is. It may be me. Does anybody else hear it? I hear it. Good, because a lot of times it's just me. Um, 
but you know where you're going, okay? And that seems to be one of the things that winter and, and early spring are really used for these days, and that's just planning or plotting out when the sun starts shining again and the temperatures rise, where we're going to go. And I will say that some people feel really compelled to do this, to plan out and plot out their vacations. My wife is like that. Uh, whenever we go somewhere, I know exactly where I'm going and when I'm going to get there and what I'm going to do there. It's all planned out for me. And that's okay. I appreciate that. She just feels compelled to go through that process. Me, not so much. I'm happy with just getting in the car and taking off from wherever I land. That's where we're at and having a good vacation. Now, with that in mind, how many of you planners of vacations, uh, especially detailed planners of vacations, have ever planned the perfect vacation like Clark Griswold there? And, uh, and then you take off and you go on vacation and it is just one disaster after another. Nothing goes the way you planned it. Uh, those type of vacations, you get great memories from those too. A lot of times you may get better memories. They're different, but they are. And eventually at some point, if you're on a, a Griswold family vacation, you stop and ask yourself, man, was this worth it? You know, really, was this worth it? What I've had to go through, uh, was it worth it? Or have you ever been, let's say you're on vacation and you're in an airport and you're getting a, uh, like a connector flight and you, you get off the one plane and you need to go board another but you don't know what gate it is that you're supposed to go to. And so you find an airport attendant and you ask them uh, to point you, you know, in, the, in the direction of your proper destination. Okay? That happens to me a lot too. I don't like to ask for directions, but I do. Um, and most men are like that too. But just like the attendant at the airport, Christians, believers, should be able to point the lost in the direction of the gate that leads them to the Savior. Just like what Mike talked about. The question is for us, how compelled are you and I this morning to tell anyone and everyone about the good news of Christ? How compelled are you to tell someone the good news of Christ? Proclaiming the gospel to anybody who will listen to you. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Chuck, and I'll, I'll stop there, I failed to mention, pray for Pastor Chuck, you may have noticed he's not here this morning, he's convinced he has food poisoning. And I talked to Emma a little while ago, and she said, yes, yeah, she believes he does. And I told her, I said, well, you know, you tried, but he's still here, <laughs> you know, because he's her cook, she's his cook. Um, so next time, Emma, you can do it, okay? Uh, but pray for Pastor Chuck. But last week, if you were here, you remember, uh, he walked us through the Apostle Paul's farewell address to all of the folks the church there in Ephesus, okay? Uh, and that was a heartfelt goodbye with many a tear. There's a lot of crying going on and many prayers. And then Paul boards a ship with plans on going to Jerusalem. Now, this period of time, that is the end of the third and final missionary journey for Paul. Uh, and then that, that third and final missionary journey took about three years. That was about three years of time. And so this morning here, just, a, just for a few minutes, and then over the next few weeks, uh, what we're beginning to look at is Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem and then his imprisonment in Caesarea. Uh, and this time period that we're going to be going over over the next few weeks uh, is two years. So we're looking at about a five-year period here uh, in the life of the church. And so this morning we set sail with Paul and his companions one more time. But before we start this trip or this journey, I want us to take note of something that you guys heard last week uh, from, from Pastor Chuck. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, uh, that we went through last week, while speaking to the elders in the church there in Ephesus, uh, Paul tells them that he is on the, he tells them he's going to Jerusalem. He is on the way to Jerusalem, 
And he tells them something that we may not have noted last week. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he's been going, the Holy Spirit testifies that only trouble awaits him there. So everywhere he's been going, the Holy Spirit testifies to him, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to have trouble. There will be trouble when you get there. Now, we know from Scripture that God is not shy in Scripture about calling out men and women who make bad decisions. And Scripture is full of men and women who have made bad decisions, just like this church is full of men and women today who have made bad decisions. And God's not really shy about calling them out on it, okay? So with that in mind, we want to stop right here and ask ourselves, based off what Paul told the church in Ephesus, was Paul right in insisting that he goes to Jerusalem? That's a legitimate question. Was he even right in insisting that he goes to Jerusalem? That's where we find ourselves this morning. So turn your Bibles on or open them up uh, to Acts chapter 21. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Acts 21 verse 1 says this. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Now, so here we have Paul and his companions. They leave Ephesus, and they sail to or by five different cities in this one voyage. Uh, first was mentioned Kos, and then Rhodes, uh, Patera, Cyprus, and then Tyre. And it, said, it told us that they stayed a week in Tyre, that the ship had to unload its cargo. Probably, we don't know this, but most ships in that area at that time, when they... Uh, when they docked and had to unload cargo, most of the time that was grain that was going to be taken down to Egypt. And these were large ships with a lot of grain, and so it took time. That's probably what was going on. That's what most of them were doing at that day. And it tells us that they had found some followers of Christ there at, uh, at, at Tyre. And these disciples, it says, told Paul through the Spirit, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. As Paul and company were leaving the disciples of Tyre and their families, the church in Tyre, walked with them to the shore where the ship was docked. Now again, just like in, in Ephesus, back in chapter 20, uh, it says they all knelt and prayed and said their goodbyes to each other. Now this, for us church today, is a great picture of what church looked like in those days and what should, church should look like today, okay? What it says, what it tells us is that the whole church of Tyre went with them. When they were ready to leave, the whole church of Tyre walked with them out of the city, down uh, away from the city to the shore where the boat was. They all went with them. And then it says they knelt down and prayed. How encouraging would that have been for Paul and all these guys that are with him? The Holy Spirit had testified to him, you're going to have trouble when you get to Jerusalem. These people, through the Spirit, had said, please don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul still headed that direction, him and his companions. And how encouraging would that have been? Because Paul knows trouble's coming that the whole church goes with him, and they kneel down and pray. So what's going on in Tyre is that this church was full of unashamed witnessing believers. 
That reminds us of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And these folks from the church in Tyre, they knelt down in a public place. Make no mistake, where they were at was a very public place. It might, have been, might as well have been in front of the courthouse. They knelt down in a public place and prayed with their brothers and sisters. What a great example that is for us today, for the church today. What a great example. So here we have Paul, who everywhere he had been traveling to has the Holy Spirit telling him there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. And then the Spirit through other believers warns Paul not to go there. Paul seems like, to me, uh, the guy who went in for an important job interview. And as the interview started, the first question the interview asked him was, where do you see yourself in five years? And that's a common interview question. And the guy answered and said, I'd say my main problem is not listening to people. That's who Paul seems like right now. He ain't listening, okay? Seems like Paul has the same problem. And now in verses 7 through 12 that we're getting ready to look at, we board again from Tyre. We go to Ptolemaeus for one day and then to Caesarea, where they come to a guy's house that we may recognize, and his name is Philip. And yet again, Paul is going to be told what will come out of a trip to Jerusalem. So let's look at it. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 7, says this. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And I'll tell you, the Evangelist is probably added in there to distinguish him between other Philips. Uh, but this Philip, if you remember, was one of the seven original deacons in the church of Jerusalem. He was one of the original seven chosen uh, to be a deacon in the church of uh, Jerusalem. Um, and I lost my place. Uh, so yeah, we, we might recognize him, Philip. And then yet again, Paul is told what will come out of a trip to Jerusalem. Now, before we get on to Paul, well, let me read it first. Verse 7, starting says, let me finish that. I, I started it and then I quit. That's what happened to me. Uh, verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, that was Paul's belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, before we get on to Paul, like everybody else seems to be doing, we need to remember something. Paul had a deep sense of the Holy Spirit's leading him. Paul had a deep sense that the Holy Spirit of God was leading him. If we look back at the scripture where Paul is told by the Holy Spirit in chapter 20, where he's talked to by the Holy Spirit, where he's testified, the Holy Spirit testifies, in 20, we get a clear picture of what's going on here. And I want to read that for you quickly. Acts 20, 22, 23, and 24 says this. And see, now I go, bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. We knew that. We've already talked about that. But 24 says this. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. The joy that Mike Harris talked about. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify 
to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had a deep, deep sense of the Holy Spirit leading him to go to Jerusalem. Paul was one of those guys, the thought of believers, the thought of fellow believers, of Christians, and their need to be rooted in the gospel of Christ was constantly on his heart and constantly on his mind. No matter what may come his way, he was always thinking about those folks, no matter what came his way. And so, uh, we, we want to stop here and ask ourselves, you know, surely at some point, Paul himself stopped and said, man, is this the right decision? It doesn't say that in Scripture, but surely he did. Surely he questioned himself and said, is this the right thing to do, okay? He must have done that. But being sure of the sense of the Spirit's leading, he pressed forward and was resolved to preach and to reach his own people in Jerusalem. It's like Christ in John chapter 4. Right after he had encountered the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and if you remember, she had gone back into town to tell everybody what had happened to her, that Jesus had changed her life. And, and then the folks were coming out to see. They believed her and they went out to see her. When all of that is going on, Jesus' disciples were trying to get him to, to eat something. He had to be tired. He had to be hungry. He had to be thirsty. And they're trying to get him to eat something. And Jesus tells them in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Paul's in the same boat right here. Likewise, Paul felt compelled to go to Jerusalem. So here we have Paul. He's battling the fact of sure persecution when he gets there versus the Holy Spirit being compelled to do God's will. So we ask ourselves, church, you, ask yourself this this morning, and I asked him, what would I do? What would you do? What would we do? How far would we go? Think about it. The Spirit is telling him he's going to have trouble there. And now we have folks in two different towns by the Spirit's leading asking him to not go. And now we have a prophet of God, Agabus, tell him how he would be dealt with in Jerusalem. Literally tells him how he would be dealt with. Yet, Paul interprets all of this as a warning to get ready. It's not don't go. It's a warning to get ready when you do go, okay? It wasn't a prohibition to go. He, he interprets it as a warning to prepare for what was coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Paul writes, Necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. If only I would feel the same way about sharing Christ. And if only you would feel the same way about sharing Christ with anyone and everyone. Especially, especially those who you believe God is leading you to speak to. If God has laid somebody on your heart to share the good news with, woe unto you if you do not share the good news. To you and to me. Woe unto us. Finally, verses 13 through 16 say this. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Verse 16, Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Now, back in verses 11 and 12, we had Agabus, the prophet of God, uh, who, by the way, is the same prophet who, back in Acts chapter 11, God had used him to predict the famine in Jerusalem. It's the same guy, Agabus. So we have Agabus, Luke, we have Luke, the author, 
We have all of Paul's companions. We have Philip and his family. We have all of these people. And all of those people were very near and dear to Paul's heart. They loved Paul, and Paul loved them. They were near and dear to his heart. And they are broken and in tears over what awaited Paul in Jerusalem. They knew what was going to happen, and they were broken over it, okay? They begged him not to go. And starting in verse 13 that we just read, we see that Paul was touched deeply. The words that he uses, break my heart, it means literally to crush or to break into pieces or to weaken. Paul indeed was broken by the love and care shown here by his brothers and sisters in Christ. It broke him. But God. Paul could not listen to them. He could not give in. Paul was convinced that God had called him to go to Jerusalem. And the answer he gave in verse 13 should be a rallying call for any believer in this room or within the sound of my voice. It should be a rallying call for every person who's called to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And if you're in this room, you are called to a ministry in Jesus Christ. There's no one that, uh, I, in 830 I said, there's nobody that escapes that. A better word to, to be used would be, there's nobody that doesn't, is not given the privilege of having a ministry. Every servant, every preacher, every teacher, every family leader, every one of us should feel compelled to speak the words that were used. I'm ready for the name of Christ. If you're a believer in this room, I pray that from here forward, you are compelled to speak those words. I'm ready for the name of Jesus Christ. And finally in our scripture this morning in verse 14, it says that since Paul couldn't be persuaded to go, they ceased and said, The will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. Don't you just love that after everything that's happened, and now we're looking at about a three-week period here, all of this stuff, after everything that's happened leading up to, in all those days leading up to this day, Paul's companions went with him. You know, they begged him not to go. They told him not to go. Uh, all this stuff that happened, they went with him. And not just them, but at least some of the believers from Caesarea went. And we know those folks went at least halfway. It's in the Bible. It's in Scripture. They went at least part of the way. So yet again, what a great picture we see here. These folks, these believers, these Christians, didn't just tell Paul they loved and cared for him. They demonstrated it by their actions. They go to Jerusalem and go straight to the house of Nason. Now this guy is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. At least not that I can find. Nason is not mentioned anywhere else, but he's known by these people. He's known by these, these folks because they go straight to his house. And it says that he uh, was an older believer, okay? Uh, he was one of the earliest members of the church. And maybe, we don't know this, but it fits in the time. He may have been there at the day of Pentecost. He may have been there at the day of Pentecost. He was in Jerusalem. He's a, a older earliest member of the church. Now, all of that said, he's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So how important really is this guy? Well, Nathan is important enough that God put his name in Scripture. That's how important he is. He's important to God. He should be important to us. And what we learn from him is that he was an old faithful believer, had been in the church for a long time now, and he's willing to let these people come and lodge with him. That's where they go to stay because they know that they can so what a great examples we have this morning uh, from our scripture that we've read, from all the scripture we've read, concerning following the Lord 
and the call that he has placed on your life. What a great example we have on my life and yours. Whatever that call is, whatever the ministry he has called you to, and it may just be a prayer ministry, but he's called everybody to something. Whatever it is, following the Lord and the call he has placed on your life. And then the example of the love and care and concern that the church body has for one another. What a clear picture we've got of that this morning, okay? So the question is, how compelled are you and I this morning to share the good news of Christ? How compelled are we to demonstrate our love and our care and concern for his church body? And finally, if we are, if we feel compelled uh, that strongly, then are we willing to say a mean like the believers did in verse 14? Let the will of God be done. Now, I'll close with this. If you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, you have all you've done this morning is sit and listen to believers be challenged. To believers be challenged. And so, based off what I've said and what I've read, I am compelled to tell you, if you're in this room and you've not been reconciled to God, if you're not a believer, if you've not been saved, I want to tell you something. You're a sinner just like I am. And you need a Savior just like I need a Savior. There's nobody who doesn't fit into that category. And the only one who can save any of us has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. All you have to do is place faith in the finished work of Christ on the, call, on the cross, the, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the only thing that can save you from your sin, is placing your faith in him. I need a Savior, and you do too, and he is the one. That's the only thing that will remedy, like Mike talked about, that's the only thing that will remedy what's going on in your life. What is missing in your life, that's the only thing that will remedy that. Turn to Christ today. Unbeliever, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Believer, is it worth it? In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus tells his disciples to not be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. And that when he leaves them, he will go and prepare a place for them. And he will return and take them back to that prepared place in heaven. It is most assuredly worth the cost. Look at how much he paid for us. So, may we all leave here today with the words, I'm ready, whatever may come, in the name of Lord Jesus. May we be compelled to share the good news of Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, and for the example that you've given us of so many faithful believers who were flawed just like us. But the example you give us in Scripture from them. Lord, help us to be compelled. Help us to have a heart for those that do not yet know you and be compelled that no matter what the costs are, we'll share. We'll tell and we'll share. And Lord, help us also to recognize the love, the care, and the concern that your early church shared for each other and help us to have those feelings for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do in hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you would stand, church. Thank you.